Hey guys, we'd like to remind you that the What's Up World podcast is sponsored by Paul and LaData Hunter, owners and operators of Whistle Stop Express and Livingstone Outreach Incorporated. Whistle Stop is located in Sand Gap, Kentucky. They sell gas, diesel, propane exchange tanks, and they carry a wide variety of automotive products. Pride dog food, several different types of livestock feed, including chicken, horse, goat, cattle, shelled and cracked corn, and more. Pick up your postage stamps while you're there, too. Their breakfast menu is served fresh every morning starting at 5 a.m., Monday through Friday, and 7 a.m. on the weekends. They close at 9 nightly. They offer the best quality deli meat sliced fresh to order. The phone number is 606-965-7613. Adjacent to Whistle Stop is Livingstone Outreach, a 501c3 nonprofit organization that focuses on meeting the needs of the community by providing clothing, food, hygiene products, etc. They are continually working to help others through youth programs and community projects. If you want to donate, call them at 859-582-3445 or stop by on your way through. What's up, everybody? We're back uh, in the studio. What's up, world? Uh, we have got Taylor Renee with us today. She's drove down from London to tell us uh, a little bit about herself. She was suggested to me by uh, by a previous guest, and here she is today. I appreciate you for coming down. Well, hi, guys. First and foremost, I want to give all my thanks to God himself for Absolutely. his grace and mercy. Mm-hmm. Um I wouldn't be sitting here today if it wasn't for him. So I was born and raised in London, Kentucky. My mom was 15 when she had me. She was in an unwedded home for pregnant teenagers. Okay. So from birth to like five years old, um, I can remember being around people who made meth. Like that was a big part of my childhood so like at five years old when i'd seen somebody with a bottle or a bucket like i knew what was going on yeah (laughs) (laughs) um let's see so about six seven year old i started smoking cigarettes with my mom really yeah um marijuana right off the rip um i don't know if she would get lonely or what what it was but she would just be like it'll make you feel good you Mm, know no um, at eight years old, I never knew my dad until I was eight. So my mom takes me to introduce me to him. And at the time I didn't know, but he was the town's dope dealer. Okay. And he was a truck driver. So it was easy access. Yeah. So at first I thought, yeah, this is going to be great. You know, my family, my mom and dad, and I had a stepsister I didn't know about and mm-hmm. a little dog. You know, who don't want that? that oh, was, yeah. That was awesome. My Sounds mind. good. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then it got real bad. Um, my mom ended up pretty much trading me to him for meth. Wow, really? My, yeah. He was an abuser. Um, 
And he molested me, so it's just like, you know, like I just wondered when I was a child, did she really know what was going on? But she would come back, you know, every couple weeks, get what she needed, and leave me again. Yeah. So it was just real bad off right off the rip for me. Um, When I was about 10 years old, social services come into school to remove me because they noticed all the bruises and stuff on me that my dad was leaving on me. Um, So I go to my first uh, foster home. Um, I guess I was a wild kid because I couldn't stay in one foster home long. Um, I would act out, just raise immortal cane just to get out of there. My mom would have supervised visits with me and she'd be like, oh, I promise I'm going to get you back. I'm going to get you back. But it never happened. Yeah. So I finally made it to this one foster home and I was about 11 years old, almost 12. And my dad ends up getting full custody of me back again. So I was there for about six months and social service came and removed me again. I went back to the foster home that I had been in previously and they ended up adopting me. Um, They were real well known in London. I won't say their names, but I will say that she was a school teacher. Mm -hmm. He worked for the sheriff's department. Um, They got foster parents of the year award like three times. They didn't have no kids together, Mm -hmm. but they had five of us that they adopted. Okay. So when I was about 13, 14 years old, I started to develop as a woman. Mm -hmm. Um, My foster parents were real sick people. Really? Yeah. And it just, I don't know, it was so good. And then it started to just turn around and go so bad for me. Yeah. So once again, I'm in a home where I'm being molested, abused. And it's just, I just feel like the world is just against me at this point. You know, like I just can't get a good hand handed to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And then my foster dad, well, my adopted dad at that point, ends up finding out that he has stage three throat cancer. So he gets a script for Oxycontin. Oh, wow. And I start taking those, and then he finds out. So for me to be able to get those pills, this is really bad to say, but I had to do what he wanted. So at that point, I was already stuck on him. Right. So I just continued to let him do whatever he needed to do so I could get those pills. Right. Um, that that's really says something about how strong addiction is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, at that age, I mean, I was 12, 13-year-old at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, fixing to go to high school. Yeah. So, and becoming a woman, like it was just a lot to handle at once. Oh, yeah. For a kid especially. Um, so my mom is actually in prison during all of this. She was in and out of prison my whole life. Your biological mom? Yeah, okay. my, yeah. So, this is happening, I'd say I'm about 15 years old, and I see my biological mother in Walmart one day, Mm. and she runs up to me, and I didn't even recognize her at first, you know, because it had been so long since I'd actually laid eyes on her, and she was like, I'm going to start coming and getting you in the middle of the night, sneak out, so I start doing that. Oh, wow. Well, a couple weekends into it, um... I walk in and my mom is shooting up. Mm. So I just look at her and she's like, come on, come over here, sit down. Wow. So I go over there and, you know, my mom gives me my first shot of dope. Yeah. And it's on from there. I instantly, you know, there's no words to explain the first hit of anything. 
with a needle especially, but just like the first hit of it was I think it was meth and morphine mixed. Wow. And it it was just on from there. So at this point I'm having to sneak out through the weeks just so I can get my fix. Mm-hmm. And just feel that numbness and just that the sense of relief that I've, you know, for the very first time in my life I've ever had. Um, so this goes on for three, four years. I'm sneaking out every night, every other night, staying out all night till five, six o'clock in the morning until I have to get on the bus through the school week. Man. Well, I turned 17 in August and um, of 2010. And that September... I run away from my adopted parents' home. Like, I just leave. Mm-hmm. My mom has convinced me to come and live with her. Life is going to be great, you know. Yeah. Everything's going to go good. We're going to have our drugs. We're going to be fine. One so, big party. Yeah, so yeah. I do that, you know. Well, about four months into it, she has taught me how to cook meth. Wow. How to successfully be a hustler. Mm-hmm. and just show me the lifestyle that I really didn't know, like, behind the scenes of what it was. Mm-hmm. And she showed it to me. So, let's see, that was in September I ran away. So by January of that following year, my mom has been hit with a 25-year sentence for manufacturing the third. Wow. So she just leaves me. Left alone, you yeah. know? Um, so at this point, I am shacking up with my high school sweetheart, getting him on drugs and the needle and convincing him to steal his mammals who's dying on her deathbed morphine so we can get that high that, that I want to, I want to show him, you know, Mm -hmm. what my life is about. Yeah. So... We ended up being together for a few months and I, I get pregnant. Okay. So I'm 18 at this time, and he has to be sent to rehab. His papa has had enough. He's like, it's over. You're going to rehab. Mm-hmm. Well, he'd been going to rehab for about a month, and I would not stop shooting up morphine and meth for nothing. And I ended up having a miscarriage. Mm. And that, I don't know what that done to me, but as an 18-year-old child with nobody or nothing but a dope habit and the clothes on her back, I just, at that point, I was gone. Like I really, I really thought that I was living life until that happened. Mm -hmm. So then I found somebody, a friend, so-called friend, I guess, introduced me to heroin. Oh Lord. Yeah. So I start on my journey with heroin and it's just, you know, at first it was fun Mm -hmm. and you, I had a good high and then I had to do it because the sickness. Yeah. Well, then I get my first felony for um, theft by unlawful over ten thousand under a million. I thought no. that I thought that I could just jump into a car off the car lot and just get away with it. Like, yeah. that's how far gone I was in my mind. So I get my first felony. I go to jail. I have to detox. Sick as a dog. Um, yeah. I really told myself that I would never put myself through this again. That this this was it. Once I got out and I was clean, like that would be it. I would change my life. I would do something different. Yeah. Well, I get out about two years later, and within six months, I have my second felony for another theft by unlawful, uh, unlawful charge. 
So I'm right back in there, sick as a dog, doing the same thing over and over again, telling myself, if I could just get out, I will do better. I won't do this again. Mm-hmm. Well, I do about 18 months that time, and I get back out. So you've done some some, some substantial amount of time in jail for these? Yes. For this? Okay. Yes. Yeah. From 18 to 25, I think I had maybe a year and a half out on the street. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Um, let's see. So I get back out. Okay. And I find Williamsburg, Kentucky. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and a little place called Canada Town. Yeah. And all of Canada Town, it's literally door to door. I don't know if I should say that, but it's just Meth Central down there. Right, right. I'll put it that way. It is Meth Central. So yeah. I thought I had found heaven. Yeah. And. By the time that I got my third felony, I looked like I was 87 pounds soaking wet. And I just, I looked like I had crawled out of crack house because I had. Yeah. It was bad. And at that point, my mom had done about 10 years and come home on parole. Yeah. <clears throat> and I had met back up with her and it wasn't two months in that um, I had overdosed in flea market parking lot in london and she left me in a muddy puddle hole and called the law instead of taking me to the hospital she left me wow but i mean i tell myself that maybe that was the best that was the best being of it because i don't know but she left me there and Mm -hmm. um i go to jail again this time i'm in for three years and um Within this three years, I was higher in the jail than I was on the streets. Mm-hmm. And I was sent to three different jails at this point in this three-year period. And it didn't matter, you know, what cell, what jail, what part of the jail. There was drugs just everywhere. So it was hard not to have a better, a better, <laughs> have a different outlook and a better thought about doing different. Yeah. Whenever you were surrounded by drugs. So, let's see. I get out for the third time, and I tell myself I'm doing different. Yeah. Even though I left high. I said, I'm going to do different. So, I come to London, because at that point they let me out in Leslie County, where I finished my time at. And I come to London, and I get up with one of my siblings, which I have four younger ones, and we, we were all addicts at this time. Really, all four? All of us. All five of us. There's four young wow. ones. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I come to London, and I get up with one of my brothers and my sister-in-law, and I hang out with them for a little bit, and they're spun all the way around that they don't know which way is up or down at this point. So mm-hmm. here I am. I was like, well, I might as well join them, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> so this lasts for a couple of days, and then I meet this guy. And I had not really been in a relationship in six years. Mm-hmm. So he talks me into just giving him a chance. And this was before I knew that he was London's biggest heroin dealer at the oh, time. Oh, God. Amazing. Yeah. So he's like, we're going to go to Lexington one day. And I was like, well, okay. So I fall asleep in the truck. I wake up and we're in Louisville. Mm. And I look over and he's passed out at the steering wheel drooling high on heroin. God. So I hadn't seen heroin in years. Hadn't even really thought about it, you know? Yeah, yeah. So there I go. I relapsed on heroin instantly. And 
at first I thought I had it under control and then it started to be a very abusive relationship. There would be times to where I wore a black eye for months from this guy. Um, but I really thought I loved him. Yeah. <laughs> but it really was the heroin that was talking. Yeah, yeah. Because like I said, you get to a point to where you don't want to do it, but you have to do it because you're so sick. Yeah. Um, and it's just the worst feeling in the world. There were times that I was looking in the mirror wishing I was dead than to be addicted to heroin like I was. Mm-hmm. Um, but we was in a relationship for over a year, and it was just back and forth, um, domestic violence, and just making trips to Louisville for heroin and just crazy things. Um, shooting at me in Walmart parking lot, just crazy things. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. I went back to jail for a parole violation. I was out on MRS at that time, and I'd almost had my last felony licked. And um, he gets me on the side of the road in hiding and uh, gets a law called, so I will go back to jail. So I go back one last time, sick as a dog. So he knew you was going to go to jail just by him calling the police, so it was just on purpose. Yeah. Sick as a dog. And then he's actually the one there to pick me up when I get out. I spent mm-hmm. 31 days for to finish out my sentence. Yeah. And he, he you know, the whole time he was like, oh, I'm, I'm, we're going to get clean. You know, I'm going to come pick you up and I'm clean. Well, I'm high in the jailhouse parking lot before I even leave. Yeah. So it was, wow. it was just a wrap. So at that point I come home and my brother, the one that, you know, I really, we just have a special bond with. He was there at my boyfriend's house. He had ended up getting on heroin at the time of me going and doing the rest of my time. Mm -hmm. And at first it just, you know, it broke my heart, but then it got to where I was getting high with him and I accidentally overdosed him a couple of times. And it was just, I really thought that, you know, that's what I was supposed to do in life and just introduce heroin to people because for the longest time I was enabling people to try heroin. Yeah. And now that I sit back and look at it, I just, I hate myself for it. Like, I really resent myself for it because I have ruined a lot of people's lives. And there's people that still, like, come back from it. There's people that's died from it. And um, it just really makes me, I, I don't know. It just makes me wish that my life had just been a little different from the start. But yeah. in another way, like, I I'm, I wouldn't change anything. Yeah, I can understand that because it, there's there's uh, there's one thing that every person that's been on this podcast that has dealt with addiction that they have in common. Once they have come through addiction and come out the other end into recovery, they are some of the strongest willed people that I've ever met in my life, and they're dead set on staying clean yeah. and helping others get clean. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Let's see. So, but yeah, that went on for the longest time. I ended up getting pregnant at the end of 2020. Mm-hmm. And I'm full-blown heroin addict. Um, I keep telling myself I'm going to get help. You know, I'm going to get help. But then it got to where I did. I was saying that, I well, it's the truth. I didn't have a bond with my child. Mm-hmm. I was more worried about heroin. Yeah. Um, 
I was going to give it away, adopt it, you know, whatever. Is I was just telling everybody that. And I was serious. I was serious at the moment. You know, yeah. I didn't love the child at the moment, and I didn't. Mm-hmm. For me to sit here and say that I was just saying that would be a lie. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've never had nobody. Um, everybody in my family I've got high with. Everybody. Literally. My papa, everybody. Um, I don't have anybody that's blood-related. Besides my brother now that I talked about before, he is actually in recovery, him and his wife. Awesome. But at that point, I had nobody. Um, I had the clothes on my back. It got to where I was walking the streets. I was the definition of trash. A pregnant heroin whore is what I was. Like, that's what it comes down to. I would have done anything that I had to do and did do anything to get that hit of heroin. Mm. Because I lost it all. I lost my house. I lost... I lost the money I had. I lost the drugs I had. You know, I just, I lost everything. Heroin took everything from me. Um, I really thought that when I first tried meth in the needle, like, like that was the devil. Mm-hmm. And then I shot up heroin and I just knew that that was the devil. Like I walked in hell for years. I know I did. Yeah. And I, I wasn't even a believer in God then, but I knew that I was in hell. Yeah. So... I'm pregnant. I'm doing whatever it takes to get my next fix. I'm not going to the doctor for this baby. I'm not taking prenatals. I'm not doing anything that doesn't involve my next fix and Mm -hmm. not being sick. So, let's see. May, about the middle of May of 22, 21, not 22, um, I overdosed. I'm eight and a half eight and a half months pregnant and I overdose. Wow. And luckily where I'm at, they called 911. So all I remember is waking up in Lexington. So I'd been flown out to Lexington Mm -hmm. and I had been in a light coma for five days. Five days. And when I wake up, (laughs) there's doctors around me and everything and they're just like lecturing me, but I really don't like, I'm not comprehending what's being said. And then they tell me that I'm in Lexington, that me and my child have survived, but I needed to seek getting help. So whenever I really did comprehend that, I knew right then, like there was just this overwhelming feeling that come over me. And I knew that that was God. Mm-hmm. Like I just knew in my heart that was God. Yeah. Cause why else would I have survived? And this, this unborn child that, you know, at that point I loved, I knew that I loved. Yeah had survived an overdose and it's just it just blew my mind you know so right then I can remember I broke down and I begged them people the ladies in the maternity ward please get me help please I need help yeah so there's this place in Lexington called the chrysalis house it's a home for pregnant women and that's where they got me into and they got me regulated on suboxone so I go to the chrysalis house and, you know, I don't know nobody up there. I'm alone. I walk in with nothing but the hospital robe on my back and the slippers that they sent me with. Really? Yeah. So, and I just keep telling myself, like, I got to do this. I got to do this, Mm -hmm. you know? So I do. And um, July the 18th, my baby is born in UK hospital. And uh, I was scared the whole time because I just knew that something was going to be wrong with him, you know. And other than having to be detoxed from the heroin, um, my baby was born fully healthy. What about that? Almost eight pounds. Wow. uh, Just 
and to look at me and when at the end of my pregnancy, I was like 110 pounds. Mm -hmm. You never would have thought that he'd been that big, but he was, he he was huge. He was beautiful and he was healthy. That, that was just that. I mean, that right there, that just, that's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. When I seen him, I knew that, you know, this was going to continue to be my life. Like I was going to, I was going to do what needed to be done for him. Found your new fix. Yeah. I was just, it was going to be him or nothing. Yeah. So after 21 days of staying in Lexington with him for the detox, um, we finally get to go back to the rehab and, um, life was great. You know, I was loving it, even though I was having to wake up every three hours, I was loving it. (laughs) Um, it was just great. Like I just, I love the feeling that I was feeling. I hadn't really, um, I hadn't really gave my life over to the Lord yet, but I, I was, I was, I was there. I was like at the moment of it. Um, at this point I had people that had been in my life in my past Mm -hmm. that were, um, a preacher, Chris Stanley and his wife, Leslie Stanley. They, uh, I did a lot of running around with their daughters at one point and they actually tried to help me at one point in my life when I was down and out and I just wouldn't listen to them, but they got in touch with me and you know, they just, they told me they believed in me and that's something that I needed to hear. Yeah. And, um, so, um, I finished the program in Lexington and they have this thing that you can, um, continue and they have housing that you can live in. I automatically turned it down because that's where my drugs were at was in Lexington. Okay. So I automatically okay. knew that I couldn't stay there. Well, I do some searching and I find this place in Somerset. It was a new home called Breakthrough Revolution for women with their kids. So I was a part of the trial run group. And I'm there for a couple of months and the trial run turns into 17 women and 17 kids being stacked on top of each other in a five bedroom house. Wow. So it got chaotic and me and a girl got into it and I got kicked out. Okay. So at this point I'm thinking what's going to happen? Where am I going to go? Cause I have nobody, nobody and nowhere to go that I can take this baby and stay sober and take care of him where he, how and where he needs to be taken care of. Mm-hmm. So, my brother that I talk about, he was adopted when he was young by his um, aunt and uncle, technically. But they've had him since he was three weeks old. So that's his mom and dad. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they're um, a preacher and a preacher's wife. They have been for 40-some years. Mm-hmm. So I get in touch with my brother and I'm like, can you, you know, look, can we figure something out? You think I could come there with the baby and try to get on my feet? Well, I call on my Aunt Linda and my Uncle Steve, even though by blood they're not, but they are my blood if I look at it like they're my blood. So they opened their home to me and Rowan in November of last year. And when then, I think it was four days, I got saved. I gave my life to the Lord, and ever since then, I have been going to church twice a week. I've maybe missed two church services in over a year. Um, I take care of my child. Um, he's healthy and happy and has everything he needs. Um, I've been in school for the past two years um, and on the dean's list, if that. Wow. So, That's yeah. awesome. If anybody tells you that drugs can ruin your mind, just know that yeah. you know, at one point I had meth psychosis mm-hmm. and I come back. So, um, I have a car now, a job, 
Um, I wake up in the mornings and I'm happy at who I see in the mirror. You know, um, I'm not a hopeless dope fiend no more. Like, I'm a dopeless hope fiend. Like, that's yeah. what I tell people. Like, yeah. oh, I'm not hopeless no more. I'm not trash. <clears throat> when people see me, they're like, oh, you look so good and I'm so proud of you. Instead of, hey, you got a tenth or, you know, can I get a hit? <laughs> so, I mean, that's that's just it's something new to me, all yeah. of this is, but... I wouldn't I wouldn't change it for nothing. I really wouldn't. Um I I've never loved having emotions so much. Like and some days it sucks and I'm not perfect and I'm not the perfect Christian. Well nobody is. But I can say that within this past year, um, for the first time in my thirty years of living I have wanted to live, and I wake up smiling, and I'm happy. I can hold a conversation with people. You know, I can love, and I can be loved, and it's just, I mean, I'm just, I don't know. I'm just a good person now, you know? It's a, it's a rebirth. Yeah. I guess uh, from, you know, having other people on the podcast, they kind of uh, uh, call it that. It's a complete rebirth in every way that it can be, you know, Uh there's been people on here to tell stories about the first time they ever shot up with heroin and it's an, an immediate addiction. Yeah, it is. Yeah. You're, is that the way it was with you? You're literally sick within hours of it wearing off the first time you're sick. And I mean, I can't even, I can't even describe the sickness. Um, like the Suboxone, I mm. ended up getting on, they had me on three Suboxone pills a day. Mm. And, um, for anybody that does Suboxone, you know, a half of Suboxone usually puts you where you need to be. But my tolerance was so high that that's what I needed to not be sick. Yeah, that's a lot of Suboxone. Yeah. And I told myself, I said, I got to get off of it. So I went to dig in and in Somerset at one of the Suboxone clinics, they offer this shot called Sublocade. Mm-hmm. And it's a shot that's supposed to help get people off Suboxone. You know, because the doctors will say, oh, we'll put you on a little bit and then we'll get you off. We'll wean you down. Yeah. But they don't tell you that you're sick for 60 days. <laughs> so who doesn't, you know, who wants to do that? Who wants to be sick like that? Yeah. So I do this <laughs> shot and I tell myself before I even take it, I was like, I'm going to do four shots. Four shots, that's it. It's once a month in the stomach, four shots. I said, and if I'm sick after that, I I can ride it out. I rode out a lot worse. Yeah. Well, so I did the fourth shot. Let's see. Last January was my fourth shot. And after it wore off, I was praying to God, please don't let me have any withdrawals. Don't let me have mm-hmm. any detox because I'm afraid that if I do, that I want to go right back to it. Yeah. Well, I didn't have one withdrawal sim- symptom still to this day. I don't have any withdrawal symptoms, anything. Oh, that's God right there. That is God. It exactly is God. Absolutely. Yeah. I've never heard of anybody not going through withdrawal symptoms or the sickness or anything from that. I've never heard of that. Never had one symptom. Not nothing. Not the chills. Nothing. Anything. Wow. Still to this day. I mean, I still fill a drug test for it, but it, you will for up to two years. Really? Yeah. But I have wow. no with I didn't know that. Yeah. Not a lot of people do know a lot about it because they I don't didn't. want to advertise it. Yeah. Because they don't want people to get off of it. But, mm-hmm. I mean, in my eyes, the MAT, if it helps you stay sober, I'm all for it. But for me, I'm a type of person that eventually I'm going to go right back to what I want, and that's heroin. Mm-hmm. 
because the boxing's made to get you off heroin. Yeah. You know? So yeah. eventually I would have I would have went right back to it. Yeah. So I had to get off of it, and I did. That's great. What would you, like if you could, I know that this is probably impossible for you to describe, but the sickness that comes along with coming off of heroin, is it, I've heard it explained to me is that it feels like your bones is breaking, it's it's nausea, it's vomiting, it's throwing up, it's buckets of sweat off of you, it's just horrible in every sense of the word. Yeah. Um, I would rather pull my teeth out one by one. Really? Absolutely. It, to ever have to go through not being able to sleep for days, my bones hurting so bad, all you can do is jerk and jump and just, it's, yeah. it's awful. Yeah. yeah. Cold sweats. Um, I would, I used to tie my legs off so tight that my, my feet would turn purple and it would still hurt so bad. Really? I, yeah. I would rather pull my teeth out one by one than to ever have to go through an hour of heroin withdrawal again. You know, I watched a movie one time, and you may have – this is an old movie. Uh, but it's – of course, I, I don't have any experience with it, so I can't say whether this is a good depiction of it or not. But I believe it's a probably a good, pretty good idea of what somebody goes through. But there's a movie called The Basketball Diaries. Leonardo DiCaprio plays in it, and he's very young in this movie. And he goes to this all-boys school, and he gets hooked on heroin. And uh, it shows him go from a pretty prominent family, you know, to living in the, gut, the gutters. And I highly recommend this movie to everybody. It's called The Basketball Diaries is what it is. He's a basketball player at his school, doing really good in school, just got licked, you know. And then he gets hooked on heroin and loses everything. And then the, there's a certain part of the movie where he uh, just happens to come up on an old friend of his. And the guy pretty much locks him in a bedroom in his home and forces him to go through detox. And the I can't remember the name of the guy that he played in the movie, but Leonardo DiCaprio, he starts coming off of it. And he's literally foaming at the mouth like a rabid dog and sweating bullets and he's uh it, it, it's almost demonic yeah. to watch to watch him go through this uh coming off of the heroin and stuff i mean he's he's he looks like a rabid animal in the movie and uh you know i mean again i have no experience with it but i would say that that's probably the closest depiction of it that i've ever seen it, yeah, it really is. Um, I can remember one time I was in like my third day of detox on it. And I was, you know, there's just days where you can't find it. And if mm. you can find it, it's not good enough to take your sickness away if your tolerance so high. Really? Yeah. And I was just ready. I was just ready to end it all. I would rather have died at that moment than to have felt any more sickness than what I had to feel. So it's literally just an absolute panic to get the next yes that's hit. all that's all as soon as you get your your fix mm -hmm. the next thought in your head while you're drooled out or bent over is how am i gonna get my next one so it's a never-ending never constant mm -mm. thing you can't even enjoy your high because all you're worried about is how's i'm how am i gonna get my next one yeah. you know what happens when this wears off mm -hmm. what what can i do to get my next fix you know and that's it's all that's all it is that is so sad. It is. And it's, you know, there's, I've talked to some people about it 
about either their kids being on it or whatever. And, you know, someone the other day actually was like, I just don't mentally understand it. And I was like, you won't either. You won't until you do it. You will oh, not yeah, understand you can't. it until you do it. Yeah. You know, and um, I was trying to explain to him, you know, there is no detox off meth. You eat and you sleep. I mean, you might have psychosis in your mind. You might yeah. a little bit. But I said, if it's heroin, you need to get them help now. Yeah. Do whatever you got to do to get them help now. Because once it gets too far gone, you either die or you never come back. So is Suboxone what they use to get you off heroin? Is that what you said? They use Suboxone and Methadone. But the Is meth- that the only things that they've got mm-hmm. to help with that? That I know of, yeah. yeah. And the Methadone, I mean, at one point I was going to the Methadone clinic and doing heroin. Because mixing it yeah. was amazing. <clears throat> I've heard that. Yeah. A lot of people get addicted to just the Suboxone. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, that, that there's a some type of high comes along with the Suboxone, too, right? Just yeah. not as potent, I guess, maybe? Um, I guess if you're using it, they do, like, a pain thing for it, like mild okay. pain, moderate pain. Yeah. And if you're just using it because you like there is a high that comes from it. Okay. If you don't have a tolerance for it. But okay. there's also a pain blocker in it, so if you use it, yeah. you can't really get... If you use Suboxone while you're on heroin... You're going to go into straight withdrawal. Okay. So the way the doctors do it is you have to at least be into withdrawal a day and a half before they can give you the Suboxone. Or it's it, it's it's dangerous. So you got to go through hell for a day and a half. Yeah. Yeah. They they striped me down in the bed in Lexington before they... Really? When I was pregnant, yeah. Because I was like, I'm bleeding and I was fighting them, you know, because I was so sick and I was hurting. Yeah. And it's dangerous, especially when you're pregnant. They explained to me it's so dangerous that the baby is withdrawing inside of you, too. And I could feel him, you know, like he was trying to crawl his way out of my stomach. Oh, my God. It was just... And to sit and think about it now, like, uh, I really resent myself for the things that I put my child to child through, especially when I was pregnant with him. But to just see where I'm at now and to know that the things that I've accomplished and where I've come from, mm-hmm. you know, it just makes the good override the bad. Yeah. Because it could have been a lot worse. Yeah. You know, my, my kid, come, he could have come out with all kinds of things wrong with him. He could have died, you know, just anything. Yeah. But as of right now, he's he's healthy and he's happy and he, <laughs> he's the strongest little baby I've ever met. <laughs> but yeah. How old is he now? He's 17 months old. 17 months. His name was Ro- Rowan. Rowan, that's a cool yeah. name. Rowan Cash. It's hyphenated. So. Oh, yeah. That's a cool name. Yeah. He's my little future NFL star. <laughs> Heck yeah. <laughs> Make mama some money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yep, and he loves church. To see my baby get up in church and praise the Lord and stomp his feet, better. clap his hands, it's just, you know, and I know in my heart that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a fire in people like you that 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 you don't see in normal people. They really ain't. Uh, and I've said this before to other people that's been in the studio before. You'll never see, like... Every now and then in life, you'll come upon somebody that's just, they're just motivated. They're, they've got some type of goal that they want to achieve and stuff. And you may not know it at the time, but later on down the road, you'll find out that that person used to be an addict. Yeah. You know, I've found that out several times in my life, not just with this podcast, but like, God, there's something about that dude. There's something about that girl right there that they just seem like they're ready to push the world around. And then later on, you find out that, hey, did you know that he or she used to be 
I'm a really bad bad addict. And I'm like, no, I didn't know that. Yeah. These people, the, the people like you and, and all these other people that's been in the studio, I'd hate to get in their way is what I'm trying to say when they're trying to do something good because they're very dead set on what they want to do. Yeah, I, yeah, I definitely have my goals set out for me. Um, when I started college, you know, like I said, my second year would be this January. Mm-hmm. I tell myself I, I will succeed at this. You know, I will do something. I will get my bachelor's. I will. And, you know, I've been on the dean's sem- uh, list every semester. That's awesome. <laughs> it's been hard. I barely um, know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm raising, I raised an infant to, you know, a toddler. I held a full-time job, and I went to school all at the same time, online school at night to beat it all. Yeah. So, I mean, and there was people that, you know, tell me, and be like, it's going to be hard, Taylor. I don't think you'll be able to do it. I will do it, too. Watch yeah. me. I will do this. I yeah. will. And I will succeed at it. Let them people motivate you. Yeah. And I know you do. I'm not telling you nothing new. I know you already do this. But don't let people like that get you down. Just put them behind you and say, all right, that's just going to fire me up even more. Yeah. So uh, another thing is, um, so I'm going to school for human services and counseling. You know, I want to help. I want to be the person like the ladies in the maternity ward that I woke up to. I want to help someone that helped me like they did. <coughs> I want to be able to give someone inspiration and hope and to just let them know that they can do it. No matter what you've been through, no matter what life has done to you or what you ha- you think you're at the bottom, you can come right back up. Absolutely. Um so that's what I'm in school for, and I got peer support certified in June. And okay. um, everywhere I went, they wouldn't hire me because of my record, you know. Mm. And I'm sitting here thinking, like, doesn't it? Don't you want peer support that has yeah. a background? Like, that's the only way I would be able to relate to clients is yeah. having somebody, you know, like me. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many times I've said in this podcast that uh, the best people to have in those types of positions is people that's been there yeah, and lived it yeah, and know how to come out of it. Like my case manager at the rehab in Lexington <clears> I was at, she was a recovering addict and she let me know real quick. And then that's the only reason why I was able to sit and work with her is because she had been where I had been at one point. Yeah. You know, she's the same person as I was. So, you want people to be able to empathize with your situation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have, I've had these rehabs tell me, oh, well, you're, you know, because my last felony is assault on a police officer. Hmm. So, <laughs> <laughs> so they're like, oh, you're just too violent. I'm a five foot two girl. You think I'm too violent? Like, no. Like, it was just, I was in, I was on drugs. It was a it different was the person. Drugs. Yeah. Like, if you, there's people who look at me today and be like, that wasn't you. Like, I can show them my last mugshot and they're like, no way. Really? Yeah. So, well, you know, I kind of have to say that I, when you first walked up, I was like, there ain't no way. <laughs> I had I had a little, just and like I told you before we started recording, I never know a whole lot about what somebody's coming in here to tell. I prefer it that way. Yeah. But I knew that you had something to tell along these lines. And when you first walked up, I was like, there ain't no way. Yeah. But you just never know. You really never know. Because I mean, you would never suspect you to have lived the life that you have. Yeah. I get that a lot. Like I work with a lot of, um, 18, 19 year old kids Mm -hmm. and, um, 
I try to be a lot to some of them and try to share my experience with some of them, you know, because for me, weed was a gateway drug. And I don't think that the definition of gateway to the generation these days is what it really is. You know, if that's the first drug you do and then you go on to another one, that's Mm -hmm. that's the gateway right there. Oh, yeah. That's the gateway opening up. Yeah. So I try to be a lot to some of these kids and, you know, some of them's like, oh, that wasn't you. Look at you. Like you have your teeth and everything. And I'm like, you know, just because I have my teeth doesn't mean I went in a drug addict for 16 years. Mm -hmm. You know, some people are just, some people's genes are made differently. Oh, yeah. It don't affect everybody the same way. It does not, no. Or do the same, you know, physical changes and everything that that it does in everybody, I would would imagine. Uh, But, yeah, that's, I feel like. I mean, you can walk, I didn't know this. I learned this from somebody that was on this podcast, but you can go into many gas stations and they have these things that is what, uh, I think it was actually Bambi that, that, that educated me on this. It's full blown meth that they're selling over the counter in these gas stations. And if anybody out there listening knows where I live, there's one less than half a mile from me that sells this stuff. Yeah, they're everywhere. They're it's everywhere. unbelievable. Yep, and and you know, I hope and pray. I can't ever say that I won't allow my child because I can't stop him from doing anything. Mm-hmm. You know, he's going to learn from his mistakes. Yeah, and I'm hoping that because I'm not, I'm going to tell him whenever he gets old enough to uh, to understand and comprehend like what my life was like and what life was like for him whenever I was pregnant with him and everything like mm-hmm. where I was at and where I've come from and where we are now. Oh yeah, but. You know, I just, I hope and pray for the sake of these moms and dads' as kids that's getting these things, that something happens to where they can either get help or it gets banned or just, just anything, you know, because it's synthetic drugs that's actually getting sold. It's not even, yeah. and you know, yeah. real heroin would be safer than the synthetic heroin that they're selling is the mm. crazy part about it. And it's just like, they don't even care. You is know. the synthetic stuff uh, that's altered after the fact, you right? You can buy it off of, like, Chinese websites, yes. On the black market and yeah, stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's crazy. Um, they would, in my county, I guess I can say, they would rather ban a poker machine than ban the synthetic drugs in the gas station. And to me, that's sad. Well, they just did that. Yeah. They banned the poker machines, but left all the drugs behind the counter. Yeah, and that's sad to me. Like, in those carts, like the legal THC carts or whatever, mm-hmm. like, I'm around some kids that smoke those, and I just, you don't really even know what's in those for one. And two, like, if that's what they're doing now, just imagine what they're going to do five years from now. Oh, Because eventually it's going to get to where, I mean, that's what it was for me. This ain't giving me what I need. Let me go yeah. up a step. You know, and then let me go up a step, let me go up a step. And then, you know, it just, it gets out of control and you can't handle it no more. Is heroin like the, and the reason I asked it, in my, in my mind, heroin has been like the top rung of most toxic drugs there is, but now you got fentanyl. Yeah. Well, is that like worse? Do you think? I did fentanyl because I had a high enough tolerance to do it. See, that's what I was. what I was going to lead up to. You had such a high tolerance for heroin. You have to move on to the next thing. Yeah, and that would be fentanyl. Yeah, um, fentanyl is very dangerous. I have accidentally overdosed a lot of people on it, and I was the type of person that I always had Narcan on me. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a long time, I made a joke about being the Narcan nurse because. 
people were wanting to get so high that they died for me to Narcan them to come back. And like, that's what we, that is insane. That's what we used to do. And we, and we did that because at one point it was a high in its own and it's just so like legit die, legit dying. Yep. And then Narcan and you to come back. Yeah. Yeah. So they would do that with the intention of dying and bring them back with, uh, Narcan. Narcan. Yeah. Narcan gives you this instant rush and then it makes you sick. But as long as you have a, a dose of heroin or fentanyl after the Narcan, it completely takes you right back out of withdrawal. It seems like there's always some type of way for the things that's supposed to be good, like Narcan or Suboxone, to be interpreted into the drug itself to create a whole new level of high. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's probably the way it's going to always be. Yeah. It's just getting worse. Um, yeah. Yeah. When it, let's see. Like when I went, when I did my last felony time, three years, when I went in, you didn't hear about heroin and fentanyl around here. So I completely forgot about it. You know, mm-hmm. I done morphine and stuff like that. But when I got out, heroin was everywhere. Yeah. It was just everywhere. And it was just crazy. Mm-hmm. And what three years had done in time. And, you know, 12 and 13 year old kids are doing heroin. And fentanyl, and it's just it's so scary. It's it's crazy. Within this past year, um, two younger kids, six, 16 and 17 year old, that I knew from the life of addiction, died. Mm. You know, really? They're dead. 16 and 17. 16, 17 years old, and their moms, you know, their moms had to bury them. And just for me to just think about that, like, you know, and from my standpoint, like, my mom's in federal prison right now. She got a 25 year sentence. Mm-hmm. Uh, about six years back, but <clears throat> you know, my I wouldn't even think about myself as all oh, my mom's crying over my grave because really, when it come down to it, my mom enabled me. Like my, my mom made that. My mom made what I was. She yes. set it out in stone. Mm-hmm. She she laid out the plan work to it. Like that you said, her. three years old. Did you say three years old when she first uh, when she started first- doing something? Gave me my first. Yeah, she yeah. gave me my first hit of marijuana at six. At uh, six, okay. She gave me my first shot of dope at thirteen. Jesus. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That is that's that's hard to even that's hard to comprehend. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and like all of my siblings under me were drug babies. I feel like the only reason why I wasn't is because she was sent to that home, that, mm-hmm. you know, because she was 15 when she was pregnant with me. Yeah. Um, they were all drug babies. Um, <clears throat> my brother that I talk about that was adopted, he was raised in a church, loving home. And then, you know, he started getting around my, my mom and them and um, mm-hmm. full-blown, you know, never knew what drugs was his whole life. He was 18-year-old, and he started shooting up and stuff. And for a minute he was gone, but, you know, he had already knew God and he knew what God could do for him and he finally found his way back. But for a minute he was far gone. Yeah. And I really didn't think that he would ever come back either, you know. But he did. And it's just, it's it's really crazy to see the things in the world that God can do. Um, of all the people in the world, God saved me and I was the last person that needed saved. Like I, when I tell you I was the definition of trash, I was, you know, I wasn't, I was nothing in life. Mm-hmm. I really, I would have been better off dead most days around most of the people around here and, um, around London anyways. And I don't know, I guess God seen something in me that I didn't see nothing in myself. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. He knew that he knew what you was capable of. Yeah. And I have no doubt about that. 
just like I said, you know, the the these these folks that come in here and they get over these this addiction uh, problem, man, they they're determined people. Yeah, they really are. Yeah, well, I mean, my aunt and uncle who I live with, you know, they they're the only real blood family that I have. You know, like I told them one day that I was like, you all are like the mom and dad I never had, and they really are. Like they yeah. care, they genuinely care, and. I can remember sitting uh, outside of my aunt's work one day right before I ended up having to be flown to Lexington. I was pregnant. And I was, you know, I was telling her, like, I don't love this baby. I don't have a bond with it. You know, I don't know what to do. And, you know, she told me, she's like, I believe in you, Taylor. You can do this. You just need to seek the Lord. Yeah. And, you know, at that time, I can remember I was just rolling my eyes and, you know, just agreeing to get the conversation over yeah. with. You know, but she was right. She was right. Yeah. At the end of the day, she was right, and um, she never she never gave up in me, and she still don't. You know, she's still pushing for me. This morning, you know, before I left, she was like, I just want you to know that I'm so proud of you, and you can do anything, you know. You can do this, and that I love you, and, you know, she genuinely does. Like, that. it's real. When it comes from her, I know it's real. Oh, yeah. So. It's a good motivator. Yeah, yeah. It feels good to know that you have somebody rooting for you in your corner. Absolutely. Yeah, when it's been empty your whole life. Yeah. So. But they're amazing people. If it hadn't been for them, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. Mm. If it hadn't, I mean, God knew what He was doing at the time that He was doing it. Yeah. So. Oh, absolutely. He's got a time and place for everything. I think God will purposely let you hit rock bottom, or else you know you'll you may have a reason to go back to it. You know, if you don't hit rock bottom or just the lowest point of your life possible there's always room to try and hit that point again. So maybe he lets you just get to as low as you could go and then. Yeah, there was no lower for me. Yeah, and, and then not even just for that, just to be able to tell your story of just how bad it got and look at you now. Yeah, look at it. Yeah. Yeah, and like um, God did something real good for me today. I had a rehab reach out to me actually this morning, and that's where I was at before I came here. Awesome. Um, I got a, a job offer to be a peer support. Sweet. So that's awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. So, and you know, it, it is crazy because God really does. He puts things in our lives when we need it at the moment we need yeah. it. You know, it, and before I probably maybe wouldn't have been strong enough to be around people coming in fresh off the streets. You know, still high. I mean, I don't know what the reason of it, but I do know that. This that God wanted me to wait. That's mm -hmm. all I know. Cause I mean, like I said, I gave up. My aunt and uncle kept telling me, like, don't give it up. It just ain't time. Just yeah. it ain't time yet. It ain't time for you. Yeah. But this morning I got a job offer, and within five minutes they were like, "Can you start tomorrow?" And I was like, "I got to give it two weeks." But oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but gotta you know, give it two weeks. I gotta give that two weeks notice. Yeah. But. Well, that is awesome. I'm super happy for you. Congratulations yeah. on that. Thank you. You're doing great. Uh, drugs doesn't discriminate. They do not. Absolutely. Uh, you know, just like what you saying a minute ago, people may be surprised to look at you now and then hear about your past and stuff just like I was. Uh, it doesn't discriminate. You can be any type of person in the world and drugs can take complete control of your life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's unreal. It's so scary. You know, <clears throat> I've never dealt with drugs in my life. Uh, I've never, I don't have any experience with that. Uh, well, I mean, drinking is a drug. I used to drink pretty heavy. And uh, it got to a point in my life where I, you know, 
in no way the the in in the in the to the uh, extent what you're talking about and what you dealt with, but it was uh, to the point where you know Friday was coming around and it was run around time time up in London because I used to run around in London every weekend all weekend long and then me and a buddy would go to Jellicoe, Tennessee and fight and fight in car wash bays for money and uh, we'd be drunk the whole way there and during the fight <laughs> and come back <laughs> and stay out all night long uh, it's just uh, it's so crazy what what drugs and alcohol make you do and I I, I have never my my uncle was an alcoholic, so maybe I guess it stemmed from that. I'm not going to say that that's the reason I made my own choices. You know, I chose to drink a whole lot and stuff, so it's not like it's. Uh, I don't believe that uh, that uh, it was anybody else's choice but mine. But drinking for many years, I finally got off uh, of drinking because of my wife upstairs. That's awesome. God yeah. puts people in our lives for a reason. Yeah. I believe that. And uh, I ain't going to tell this big, long story again, but anybody that knows me knows that my wife and me dated a couple times before growing up. We've known each other our whole life. And she broke up with me when we were 16, I think, because she thought I was too mean. She thought I was on drugs and because I was all the time fighting and getting in trouble and just being stupid. So she broke up with me and married somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, thankfully that didn't work out <laughs> and uh and uh so now we're together again but she's uh, ultimately god and my wife is what got me uh to quit drinking yeah it it took god to help me it did it always will yeah yeah and you know like i said i didn't even i didn't even believe in god and then bam all of a sudden mm. but i mean i like i said if everything i've been in my life i wouldn't change it you know, if I had to, I'd go back and relive it all over again so I can be sitting here and ex and just share a little bit of experience and hope with somebody else. Oh, absolutely. It's made you what you are today. Exactly. It set you on the path. Now, it was a rough path. <laughs> it was rough. <laughs> really but, uh, rough. But uh, in the end, it's going to probably cause you to do some great things and help a lot of good people. Yeah, yeah. Used to, people would see me coming, and if I didn't have drugs, they were dreading it. But now when I walk into a room, you know, it's like I light up the room and it's just, mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm just, I love to be living today. Like, um, mm -hmm. I just love to be living. It's it's just awesome. It's awesome, you know, to see life through these clear eyes that I have now. Yeah. It's, yeah. Just, it's, it's just great. What would you say to somebody, in case they're listening, that is kind of flirting with drugs in the beginning, whether it be marijuana or meth or something like that and they're in their mind there there's no way that they would move on to anything else and <laughs> that uh oh it's just it's just marijuana for me or it's just meth once once a week or a couple times a month uh, i've got control of it what would you say to somebody like that that's got that mindset well um i felt like that too at one point and eventually you forget about saying that you have that mindset or you forget about it because you'll go around somebody and they'll be doing something else and you'll try it and you just instantly forget about it because you get hooked on it so fast, mm -hmm. you know, or you'll get, 
you'll need something more. You're always trying to fill that void with something, whether it be the marijuana or, or alcohol at first, and then yeah. the, the void gets bigger, so you have to go bigger in drugs. Like, mm. that's how I look at it. You know, it never stops. It's a never-ending cycle. That's yep. what drugs is, no yep. matter what it is. Where you start, where you end, it's a never-ending cycle. Like, mm. It's a progressive thing, yeah. you, would, you would say, yeah. maybe. It's... It's a, it's a scary thing. Unfortunately, like we said earlier, drugs is only going to get worse and yeah. more common probably yeah. and deadlier. Fentanyl will kill you just from touching it. Yep, yeah. yeah. And a lot of people, I mean, I've got 18 months sober. So about two years ago, you know, people were cutting their stuff with horse tranquilizer, you know, just anything, cigarette ashes, wow. anything. So, I mean, just um, heart medicine. Mm-hmm. You know, anything that would break down if you were, you know, a needle junkie would break yeah. down so you could, wouldn't be able to tell that it was cut. And oh. I mean, just imagine if, you know, some kid got it that has a heart problem or something. Yeah. Or blood pressure problems or just anything. It mm-hmm. instantly kill them. Instantly. My God. And the stuff that they're selling in these in these gas stations, the way I understood it, is is drugs it is it's narcotics yeah it's just what gets rebranded and repackaged or something other i've been reading up on this stuff called kratom yeah kratom first came out when i was about 19 years old i guess but you had you had to drive right on the edge of barge uh, bardstown to get it in a little gas station yeah yeah it's common now but now you can just walk into any gas station to get it yeah and they're selling pipes and stuff in gas stations. I mean, I don't really, I mean, I, I'm surprised that I don't understand that because I usually am up on things like that. But I don't know how these gas stations, unless they're selling them as novelty items or something other, I don't know how they get away with selling paraphernalia. Well, a lot of them is, <clears throat> and I don't even know if I should say it this way, but it is the foreigners gas stations. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And Every one of them. So that's probably got something to do with it. And where they're private, I was told where they're private, privately owned. Yeah, that they have a right to sell what they want as long as they brand it and sell it as something else. Like the meth pops are sold as rose pops, and they have like a little fake rose in them, but it's already got. I've seen those. Yeah, I've seen those. And that's that's how they get away with selling them. But it's full-blown meth pipes. It's full-blown meth pipe. It's even got the hole blowed in it. Like, when I yeah. was younger, you had to buy cigarette tubes and blow the meth pipe with yeah, a yeah. torch. Yeah, And now you can just buy them pre-made. Jesus Christ. It's crazy. But now everybody's, you know, is uh, doing these vapes and stuff like that. And yeah. putting stuff inside the vapes and probably going around schools and public events just getting high. Yeah. The carts. They call them carts now. Yeah, it's... It blows my mind. It really does. Where where all the stuff? It's just evolved so fast. Mm-hmm. Um, it's crazy. It's 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 crazy. You can literally walk into a gas station in London and buy legal meth. Yeah, legal heroin. Like every, in every sense of the word, that is That's what it true. Is. You can walk into a gas station and buy meth. Yeah, and the law enforcement's more worried about poker machines is what I don't understand. And yeah. then they do the war on drugs things. Well, if you would take the gas stations out, I feel like, or mm-hmm. at least, you know. The, the the laws on this stuff is so jacked up, it's not even funny. Yeah, it is. I don't understand it. Never will. But I guess uh, there's people in those positions 
to do their job, but they don't seem like they're doing too good on that stuff. I mean, I understand <laughs> that there's always going to be jokes, no matter where oh, you go. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No matter where you go, there's always going to be jokes. But it is like we are like drug central with the gas stations because every corner in London, I don't know nothing about here, but every corner mm-hmm. in London, there's a gas station. There's a oh, yeah. there's a cigarette shop, a vape shop, a CBD shop. <laughs> yeah, and they are. Every one of those has the same items. Yeah. Every one of them. You're all gas stations and little smoke shops and stuff like that. It's like Dollar General's here. <laughs> 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 there's Dollar General's and Family Dollars everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, one on every corner. It's crazy. And I ain't saying every one of them's like that. I shouldn't say that or... Uh, mislead anybody but most of them are selling this stuff yeah and i mean the foreigner ones they don't even id you so Mm-mm. a 12 13 year old kid can walk in there and tell them what they want and they'll just sell it to them yeah oh yeah and i mean that's just it's crazy it's crazy to me but i mean the way i look at it is if a kid's going to do something they're going to get it regardless they will they're going to get it I absolutely I mean, will whether they get something that's going to hurt them or whether they get something from you know like for me it's bad to say, but when my youngest brother was 13 and he wanted to try meth, mm-hmm. I made sure that I gave it to him because I didn't want him to get something. You know, at that time, they was cutting it with embalming fluid. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, I've so, heard of that. So, I, I mean, I was the first one of the first people to get him high because. Kind of like a controlled chaos. I didn't want him to get something that was going to hurt him. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't want to see him get high either, but if I didn't do it, somebody else was going to. Yeah. That's sad that you have to. Even tell yourself that yeah. he's going to get it. He's going to get it. Regardless. I'm going to do it in the safest way possible. Yeah, I mean, he came to me first, and he told me like, if you don't give it to me, I'm somebody else will. So yeah, I mean, at that point, you know, when I I beat myself up about that for a long time. You know, yeah. uh, all of my siblings ended up turning to be needle junkies, except for my sister. But oh, really? She's uh, she made her way into you know the drug life, and she's in prison now, but. Um, I think I was the first person to shoot up with all of them but one. Really? Yeah. yeah. Mm. But, I mean, I, I don't know if I was trying to make myself feel better about it at the time. But I've seen people, you know, be around people want, wanting to use the needle for the first time. And people miss on them on purpose or just hurt them, you know. Yeah. Or just anything. Yeah. Just, and it's just... The drug world is a crazy, crazy world. It's a, um, <clears throat> it's get hit or be hit type situation, I guess. Is yeah. What it is. That's probably I mean, a really good way to put it. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, it's you or them. Yeah. I mean, that's just how it is. And yeah. it, it's never a fair, a fair game or friends. People say they're your friends, but they're really not. Mm. But, yeah. It's, it's crazy. It's an evil thing too. There's nothing in it but pure evil. It is evil. It definitely sure is. Um, I really never thought that I had would be where I was at at the end of my addiction. Hmm. Like I said, I was I was far gone. I was some of the things that I was doing or would have done is just unspeakable. Um, and uh, at one point, I really thought that, like I said, that I was just I was cursed, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was walking through hell. My life couldn't have got any worse at one point. Really? I would rather have been dead most days than have to live the life that I was living. What kept you going the most? What was one thing that kept you going? Like, even though you knew you was going to wake up and need that fix and go through probably the sickness and stuff, what 
was it just the drug that kept you going or was it, did you have any glimmer of hope that you would get past it one day and you kept that in the back of your mind? I really didn't. I didn't. Um, so you had no hope, no hope. I lost all hope. Yeah. I don't know. I just, like I said, it was all God. Yeah. It really was all God. Yeah. Cause I had lost every ounce of hope that I had. Um, and I was pregnant and I didn't even care what was happening. Mm -hmm. No, Really, I was just hoping that I wouldn't wake up. Yeah. And it would all be over. Well, you know, that's proof that when you get to your lowest point where you don't care if you live or die and think nobody loves you, God loves you. Yeah. And he'll yeah. bring you out of it. Yeah. Absolutely will. Yeah, I mean, I believe. now looking back, I believe in my heart that, you know, like you said, God was letting me get to where the only person I could lean on was him. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I needed. I mm -hmm. needed that wake up call. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, this has been a good one. A really, really uh, eye opening uh, interview. I appreciate you coming down and telling us that it uh, takes some, some guts and a lot of bravery to come into a place like this and talk to as many people that listens to this. So I yeah. really appreciate it. You're welcome. And uh, I'm happy I did it. Like I said, if I could just reach one person. That's all that matters to me, just one. Oh, yeah. You will. Yeah. You will. And not even just because of this. In your own private life, you'll you'll touch a lot of people. I know you will. So, yeah. Uh, you know, it's really amazing that <clears throat> I feel real fortunate myself to be sitting across the table from people that come in here and tell these stories because it's a learning experience for me just as much as it is a healing experience for the person across the way from me yeah. to tell the story. So uh, it's, a, it's a privilege for me to get to just sit and listen, you know, and hear these stories of people's lives and the hardships that they've been through. And I know it's a really tough thing to do because you're just sitting here. It's just me and you here. Uh, there's going to be a lot of people here, so it takes a lot of bravery and a lot of guts and to do this and to talk so candidly and open about it. So I always want everybody to know that I'm very appreciative of that because I know it's not an easy thing, you know. But mm -hmm. I also know that people like you that has been through this want to tell it, even though it is hard to try and help somebody keep from getting uh, going through it themselves. Yeah, yep. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot that I skipped and stuff, but, you know, with the heroin being as bad as it is in the world and the surrounding mm -hmm. counties today like that was my main focus for this. Yeah, yeah. Because there's just... Not a lot of people even realize how bad it is, though. They don't. No, they don't. Whenever, like I said, when, when 15, 16-year-olds are passing away from the, oh, from the use of heroin and fentanyl, something mm -hmm. needs to be done. Like, oh, absolutely. More people need to speak out. Yeah. So, I mean, that's... And, you know, not a little, lot of people live through heroin addictions to tell anything about Very it. few. Very few and far in between. Yeah. Either make it out or live through it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's one thing about it. You're doing good now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm and rocking it. You're, you're killing it. <laughs> yeah. You're killing it. And congratulations on your job. Thank you. And uh, thank you for coming and telling us your story. I really appreciate it. I know it'll touch a lot of people. Yeah. It's touched me, so thank you very much. Well, thank you. And I uh, appreciate everybody for listening. And uh, with that, I guess we'll end it. Mm -hmm. All right. Y'all have a good one, everybody. See you next time.
to rev up your engines and accelerate towards economic growth, introducing Backroads of Appalachia, the groundbreaking initiative that fuels economic development through motorsports. Motorsports has long been more than just a thrilling spectacle. It's a dynamic platform that ignites growth in local economies, creates jobs, and transforms communities. When we invest in motorsports, we invest in innovation. The quest for speed pushes boundaries, leading to cutting-edge technologies that find applications in various industries, from automotive to aerospace. But that's not all. Backroads of Appalachia generates tremendous employment opportunities, from skilled mechanics to marketing specialists. We're revving up job creation for people from all walks of life. And let's not forget the fans. Motorsports events draw crowds from all over, injecting a surge of tourism into local businesses, hotels, and restaurants. And shops thrive as visitors gather to witness the exhilaration of the track. Hosting motorsports events puts your city on the map. It elevates your community to the global stage, attracting international audiences and investors eager to be part of the excitement. But Backroads of Appalachia doesn't just cater to established businesses. It nurtures the aspirations of future generations, too. We inspire young minds to pursue careers in STEM fields and motorsports, paving the way for a brighter, more technologically advanced tomorrow. Join the Backroads of Appalachia movement today and experience the engine of economic development roar into your community.